Hello, and thank you for joining me today as we begin our study looking at how we got the Bible. As we go throughout this study, uh, we're going to be referring to various materials from, from different uh, authors, different scholars uh, concerning Bible topics. Uh, one man by the name of Neil uh, Lightfoot actually wrote a book entitled, the same title we have for our study, How We Got the Bible. Uh, we're going to be looking at maybe a few things from him, but primarily we'll be looking at uh, a few things from a uh, man by the name of William Geiser, or excuse me, Norman Geiser and William Nix from a book entitled a, Gen a General Introduction to the Bible. And it's, it is just that. It is a general introduction to the Bible. It covers a host of things. Uh, it is a book that I use when discussing apologetics uh, for, for the Online Academy of Biblical Studies. Um, if you want something a little more uh, condensed, <laughs> I would encourage you to look up How We Got the Bible by Neil R. Lightfoot. I have one here in, in paperback. Uh, his book is, oh, roughly about 230 pages, whereas Geisler and Nix, their book, The General Introduction of the Bible, uh, is over, it's almost 700 uh, pages. I'm looking here, uh, yeah, it's... It's uh, almost 600 pages, and then you have several pages of, of notes and various things. A couple, uh, about 200 pages of notes and things in the back. Um, and so they go quite a bit uh, deeper, obviously. But when you think about how we got the Bible, when we say the Bible, we think about the Bible as we as we think of it today, the one we hold in our hands, or maybe the one we have on our phone. How did we come? How we come up with or decide, rather, I should say, which books belong in the Bible? When we think about how we got the Bible, we have to decide, I think, first off, how, you know, what, how do we decide what books went into the Bible? This helps us understand how we got the Bible as we know it. And so we're going to begin by looking at that very idea of determining what books are part of the canon or canonicity. Now, as we look at the, the definition of terms here, I'm going to do my best also to keep this PowerPoint lined up with my... Uh, speaking here, but literally speaking, the original meaning of the term canon can be traced to the ancient Greeks, you used it in a literal sense. A uh, canon was a rod, a ruler, a staff, or a measuring rod. Uh, we also want to consider those, we think about the canon, we think about what it means theologically, and then later we're going to look at uh, canonicity described as we th talk about the sacred writings, authoritative writings, and then we'll look at uh, some other things concerning uh, canonicity as we continue to go through this together. Now, theologically, from the literal ruler, the word was extended to mean a rule or a standard of anything. In early Christian usage, so to speak, it came to mean a rule of faith, normative writings, or authoritative scripture. And so, we think about this idea of canon, it means, it means it's referring to something that is authoritative. As Again, as he says here, uh, is means a rule of faith, something that, that that reveals, you might say, the the commandments for our sake. What reveals the commandments of God and God's will for us? Well, what books hold God's will, and what books reveal the truth of God's word? That's what we're looking at. How do we know what books are to be included in that canon, in that book of books we know as the Bible? So we want to understand, you know, there are a lot of ways in which people try to determine what books should be in the Bible, books that are, should be included in the canon, so to speak. But we first want to realize some, some inadequate views on how the Old Testament canon, how, you know, how some say the Old Testament canon should be uh, 
you know, should be treated and how one obtains and decides what books should be tre- should be included in the Old Testament canon. First is the idea that age determines canonicity. It has been suggested that canonicity is determined by antiquity or age. The general argument is that if the book were ancient, it would have been uh, venerated because of its age and placed among the prized collection of the Hebrew literature. But many ancient books are not in the canon. That antiquity does not determine canonicity is apparent from the fact that numerous books, many of which are older than some canonical books, are not in the canon or not in our Bibles. The book of the War of the Lords is mentioned in Hebrew in, in Numbers, rather, Numbers twenty one fourteen, in the book of Jasher in Joshua ten and verse thirteen, neither of which is part of the Hebrew canon. Many young books were placed in the canon. Most, if not all, of the canonical books were received into the canon soon after they were written. Moses' writings were placed by the ark while he was yet alive, Deuteronomy thirty one, twenty four through twenty six. Daniel, a younger contemporary of Jeremiah, had accepted Jeremiah's book as canonical in Daniel 9 and verse 2. And Ezekiel, another contemporary, made reference to the prophet Daniel in Ezekiel 28 verse 3. In the New Testament, Peter had a collection of Paul's books and considered them to be scripture, 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16. Because many old books were not accepted in the canon, and many young books were received, age could not have been the determining factor of canonicity. Next, we will think about the Hebrew language and how some say the Hebrew language determines canonicity. Well, first, you have many books in the Hebrew language that are not included in the canon. Most of the books written by the Hebrews were obviously in the Hebrew language, but they were not all accepted into the canon. Even though some of these books were were uh, filled in the Hebrew, filled with the Hebrew language at the time of the recognition of the Old Testament scriptures, for example, uh, Ecclesiastes and other apocryphal books, yet they were not received in the Hebrew canon. Ecclesiastes or Ecclesiastes, I'm probably mispronouncing that, is not to be confused with Ecclesiastes. It's not the same book. Uh, next, you have some books are not totally written in the Hebrew language and are are in the canon. Parts of uh, some of the books that were received in the Jewish canon were not in Hebrew at all, but in Aramaic. This was not only true in Daniel, as we see in Daniel 2, verse 4 and following, through Daniel 7, verse 28, but of Ezra, as, as we find in Ezra 4, verse 8, through Ezra 6, and verse 18, and in Ezra 7, 12 through 26 as well. The thesis that the Hebrew language determines canonicity then breaks down for two reasons: some books in Hebrew were not accepted, whereas books which had had some, which had some parts written in other languages, were accepted as canonical or part of the canon. Another false idea about how one determines what books should be a part of the Old Testament canon are those books that agree with the Torah, or as we have here, agreement with the Torah determines canonicity. To the Jews, ultimate, uh, the ultimate criteria for all doctrine was the Torah, the law of Moses. This being the case, it has been suggested that all Hebrew religious literature that agreed with the teachings of the Torah was accepted into the canon, and all those books that disagreed with it were not. Of course, no book that contradicted the Torah would be accepted, because the Torah was believed to be God's word, and no subsequent word from God could contradict a previous one. What this view does, uh, what this view does not account for, are the numerous books that did agree with the Torah yet were not accepted into the canon. There are no doubt many non-canonical Old Testament books, as we'll see later, that agree with the Torah and their teaching, but were never considered to be canonical. 
Shemaiah, the, the prophet, and others kept records that no doubt agree with the Torah, as we find reference in Second Chronicles 12.15, yet they are not in the canon. Mere agreement with the Torah or previous revelation is not enough. The Jews no doubt thought that the Talmud and Midrash agreed with the Torah, but did not thereby consider, uh, consider them to be canonical. Moreover, this view does not account for the, ma for the manner by which the Torah itself came, came, came to be viewed as canonical. Uh, there were no writings prior to the time of the Torah by which its canonicity could be judged. Next, we want to think about how religious value determines canonicity. Again, we're looking at some inadequate views on Old Testament canonicity. Some say the religious value alone determines canonicity. <clears throat> One view that, uh, or excuse me, this view that religious value determines canonicity, uh, no doubt merits our consideration. Uh, it is almost re uh, re uh, redundant to say that a book would be rejected if it did not have any spiritual or religious value for the canon uh, was a religious canon, and only a book of religious value will be accepted as a part of it. The mistake in this view is similar to that of the preceding one, that is, it fails to take into account that there are many books of religious value that were not accepted to either the Old or New Testament collections. An honest and objective reading of the Apocrypha will reveal much material of religious values. Uh, furthermore, even if it be conceded that a book was accepted because of its religious value, then now, then in no way, or excuse me, that in no way explains how it received its religious value. The real question to be asked is how or from whom did the books of spiritual of spiritual import that agreed with with the Torah and God's previous revelations receive their valued truth to begin with? Or for that matter, where did the previous revelation in the Torah receive its truth and authority? Meaning, where did they find this religious value? What was its source? Next, we'll look at how the religious community determines canonicity. Again, thinking about inadequate views on the Old Testament canon. According to this view, the final determination of canonicity is its acceptance by the believing community. A book that is canonical because it was collected and preserved by the, by the community of believers. You know, there are, some, there are several serious objections to this view. First, a book is not the word of God because, it, because it, it is accepted by the people of God. There are a lot of religious books out there that are accepted by people who believe in themselves to be Christians. But yet, there are, those books, does not, that does not mean those books belong in our Bibles today. Um, it was, rather, it was accepted by the people of God because it is the word of God. And so, a book is not the word of God because it accepted, is accepted by the people of God. Rather, it was accepted by the people of God because it is the word of God. That is, God gives the book its divine authority, not the people. And amen to that, right? They merely recognize the divine authority which God gives to it. Further, this view shifts the, the uh, focus of authority from God to man, from the divine to the human. Thus, the divine authority of Scripture is determined by man. Finally, the, the final acceptance of a book by the church of uh, the church that belongs to Christ often did not come for many generations or even centuries. But according to this view, a book would not uh, possess canonical authority if it came from God until the people of God gave it divine authority. But this is obviously false. For if God spoke the words of a book by means of a prophet, then it had immediate authority. Even the people of God did not acknowledge it immediately. Next, we will look at a common mistake to the inadequate views of canonicity. One is that canonicity is determined by God. 
Actually, a canonical book is valuable and true because God inspired it. That is, canonicity, rather, is determined or fixed by by, uh, conclusively by authority, and authority was given to the individual books uh, by uh, God through inspiration. The real question is not where, where a book received its divine authority, for that can only come from God, but how did men recognize that authority? Second is, canonicity is recognized by men of God. Inspiration determines canonicity. If a book was authoritative, it was so because God breathed it and made it so. How a book received authority, then, is determined by God. How men recognize that authority is another matter altogether. As one man said, by the name of Packers, uh, has this to say, The church no more gave us the New Testament canon than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. God gave us gravity by his work of creation in in a similar way he gave us the New Testament canon by inspiring the individual books that make it up. Let's think about a more sufficient view of canonicity. The first is that a book is valuable because it is canonical. A given book is is not canonical because because it is found to be valuable, rather it is found to be valuable because it is determined to be canonical by God. In other words, a book is not inspired because it is inspiring. It is inspiring because it is inspired. And lastly for this section here, a book is canonical because it is inspired. Edward Young uh, presents this view, uh, the, insp- uh, uh, the inspiration determines canonicity, when he writes, When the word of God was written, it became scripture, inasmuch as it had been spoken by God, possessed absolute authority. Since it was the word of God, it was canonical. That which determines the canonicity of a book, therefore, is the fact that the book is inspired by God. Hence, a a distinction is properly made between the authority which the Old Testament possesses as divinely inspired and the recognition of that authority on the part of Israel. In brief, brief, a book is canonical if it is prophetic, that is, if it was written by a prophet of God. In other words, uh, a book, uh, the prophetessity, I'm mispronouncing that as well, determines canonicity. Of course, one did not have to belong to the school of prophets begun by Samuel in 1 Samuel 19, verse 20, or to be a disciple, that is, a son of a prophet, 2 Kings 2, verse 3. All one needed was a prophetic gift, as Amos, as we see in Amos 7, verse 14, or Daniel, Daniel 7, verse 1, possessed. A A prophet was a mouthpiece of God. He was one to whom God spoke in visions, dreams, and sundry ways, in sundry ways, even kings such as David, 2 Samuel 23, 1 and 2, and Solomon, 1 Kings 9, verse 2, were prophets in this sense. It was necessary to have prophetic gifts in order to write canonical scripture, because all inspired writing is prophetic. Hebrews 1, verse 1, 2 Peter chapter 1, and verse 19 and 20. As we continue looking at canonicity uh, being, being discussed, we want to look at the author's were look at the topic of the, how the authors were apostles or prophets, and we have a list there of, of various letters and things which we're going to discuss here in a moment. We have a letter from Elijah, the records from Shemai, the prophet, and others, and we'll discuss those more here in just a few moments. But you know, we think about how as we consider thinking about the canonicity of the Bible, and as we've discussed already, uh, the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Ephesians 2 and verse 20. 
Apostles, by their very office, were accredited spokesmen for God. It was they whom Jesus promised the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and bring to you remembrance all that I said to you, John 14, 26. And the Spirit of truth will guide you into all truth, John 16, 13. It was the Apostles' teaching in which the early church continued in Acts 2, verse 42. And it was the Apostles who were given special signs, miracles, to confirm their message, Hebrews 2, verses 3 and 4. Those confirming signs were given to other apostles. Uh, uh, those confirming signs were given to other other apostles in the twelve, such as the apostle Paul, who had the signs of a true apostle. Second Corinthians twelve verse twelve. Uh, there was also the gift of prophecy. First Corinthians twelve verse ten. Some prophets, such as Agabus, even gave messages from God to apostles. Acts eleven twenty seven and twenty eight. John the apostle considered himself one of the one of the. Uh, one of, quote, the prophets, Revelation 22.9. So in the New Testament, as well as the Old, the determining factor in whether a book was canonical was its uh, being written by a prophet. Every New Testament book is written by an apostle or prophet. Thus, each book has either apostolic authority or, or ap- excuse me, apostolic authorship or apostolic teaching. In either case, it possesses apostolic authority. Because, uh, Matthew uh, was an apostle. Mark was considered, to be, uh, considered by many to be Peter's gospel because Mark was closely associated, associated with the apostle Peter, 1 Peter 5.13. Uh, that relationship notwithstanding, Mark had his own God-given ministry in Acts 12, verse 25, and 2 Timothy 4, verse 11. The author of Luke was an associate of the Apostle Paul, Colossians 4, verse 14, and Philippian, Philippian uh, verse 24. Luke wrote Acts, or excuse me, Luke also wrote Acts in Acts 1, verse 1. John was an apostle. He wrote John, three epistles bearing his name, and Revelation, Revelation 1, verse 4, and verse 9. Paul wrote at least 13 epistles that bear his name, Romans through Philemon. The author of Hebrews is not known for sure, but who its author was, he received revelation from God, Hebrews 1, verse 1, the truth of which was confirmed by the twelve apostles, Hebrews 2, 3 through 4. James was a half-brother of Jesus, James 1, verse 1, Galatians 1, verse 19, and a leader in the apostolic uh, church in Jerusalem, Acts 15, 13, Galatians 2, verse 9. The apostle Peter authored two epistles, First uh, Peter 1, verse 1, and Second Peter 2, verse 1. Although he used Silvanus as a scribe to pen the first one, 1 Peter 5, verse 12, this leaves only Jude, who, who was also a half-brother of Jesus, Jude 1, verse 1, Matthew 13, 55, and he too spoke with prophetic authority, as we see in verses 3 and 5 and uh, verse 20 and following. There's also good evidence that all 27 books of the New Testament come from the apostles and their associates. Uh, as we see, here, there is good evidence, I should say. Indeed, even some liberal uh, liberal schools are now insisting on a very early apostolic date for the New Testament uh, books. Um, we won't go into all that. Um, ample evidence confirms that all the books of the New Testament are apostolic or prophetic. The question that remains is whether all the apostolic books are in the New Testament. Two books in particular have been called into question, the so-called Epistle of the Laodiceans, Colossians 4, verse 16, and in Corinthian epistles, some, some believe was written before 1 Corinthians. You can see that in 1 Corinthians 5, verse 9. These books pose a problem concerning canonicity because they were both prophetic and yet are allegedly not in the canon. If uh, being a prophet is the key to canonicity, how is it that some prophetic or apostolic books are not in the canon? Well, there are two basic responses to this question. 
First, it is possible these books were not prophetic, for in addition to their divinely authoritative writings, the prophets and apostles had private or personal correspondence. They may have been they may even had grocery lists, travel itineraries, or the like. Such items were not inspired. Shemaiah the prophet and 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 Edo uh, the seer had some records, Second Chronicles twelve fifteen, that were probably not inspired. There seem to be two keys as to whether or not a, a whether or not a a writing by a person uh, was a prophet. Uh, uh, first, it had to be a had to be a public, not strictly a private writing. That is, it had to be offered to the people of God and not merely a private record. For example, of Solomon's three thousand proverbs and one thousand five hundred songs, only those public, publicly presented by Solomon were immediately re- rec- recognized as authoritative. Second, it had to be teaching something to the people of God. In short, it had to be a word from God for the people of God. Even Paul's so-called private epistles, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, and Philemon, fit this criteria, as do 2 and 3 John, which many believe were written to individuals. All of these books contain instructions written to leaders of churches, and the books were obviously circulated and collected by the churches. Otherwise, they would not have been part of the Bible through the centuries. The Bible does not guarantee that everything a prophet says or writes is from God, but only, the, only that which what he teaches is a truth from God is really from God. In short, a prophet is not infallible in his private utterances, but only in his prophetic utterances. Thus, it is possible that the prophets wrote other things that were not prophetic. Things that, we would say, things that were not religious in nature, right? Uh, you know, Maybe things such as bring this with you, or bring bring whatever this may be over here. Other things that simply were not uh, part of, you know, we would call, you know, spiritual teachings. We have a glimpse of that when Paul reminds one individual to bring with him uh, his coat and his and his, and the uh, scrolls. Right? We have a verse, just a single verse. But was that prophetic? Was he was that a, a teaching from God? Well, no, clearly not. It is possible a book could be prophetic, but still not canonical. For although for all for, uh, for although all canonical uh, writings are prophetic, it is possible that all not all prophetic writings are canonical. That is, perhaps God did not intend that all prophetic books be preserved, uh, but only those select few He deemed necessary for the believer's faith and practice. If that be so, then pro- then. Uh, Propheticity is only a necessary condition of canonicity, but not a sufficient condition. In that case, there will be another condition for canonicity. The most likely candidate for such a further condition will be acceptance by the people of God of the books that they deemed of value to the broader Christian community. But this view would mean that there are or could be books that are inspired of God, but not part of the inspired word of God. This is not only unlikely, but is also unnecessary. There is another more plausible possibility. All prophetic books may be in the canon, that is, it is possible that no prophetic book has been left out of the canon. Uh, There are plausible explanations for the only known books that are apparent exceptions to the principle. As as we have here below us, we have this list here, uh, the letters from Elijah in Chronicles 21, 12-15, the records of Shemai the prophet, the chronicles of Samuel, Nathaniel the prophet, and Gad the seer. The vision of Isaiah the prophet, the many accounts referred to by Luke in Luke uh, one verse one, the so-called real First Corinthians chapter First uh, Corinthians five verse nine, and the epistle of the Laodiceans. 
Now, we're going to stop there. When we come back next time, we're going to talk about each and every one of these. Uh, there's not that many. Uh, I'm not in a big hurry, but I think that's enough for us, what we've talked about so far today. So when we come back next time, we'll pick up looking at, uh, discussing more concerning canonicity, looking at these uh, other uh, writings here, and discuss why those things may or may not, be, uh, may not have been part of uh, the canon. I hope you have enjoyed this study. I hope you have found it encouraging and uh, interesting. And I do encourage you, if you're on the Facebook page, to leave any comments about this that you would like. And I hope you will join me again next time as we continue looking at how we got the Bible.